Good morning. Would you join me in prayer before we get started? Lord Jesus, today, like every other day, we need you. We need you to teach us from your word. We need you to move upon our hearts through your spirit and through um, our interaction with the gospel. Lord, we do see the deficiencies in our own heart and our need to be radically transformed into your likeness. And so, God, this day, would you be so gracious to us, be so merciful to us. To change us. Help us to put off that which is not in line with the gospel and to put on that which is. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been called a hypocrite? I find I don't like it too much. And about you, it's not usually a compliment. Um, and when... When you move and, and walk through life, um, particularly in this culture, a lot of fingers are pointed at the church as just one grand group of hypocrites, one big conglomeration of people who say one thing and do another. And I began to think about that this week and why that is and what actually means to be a hypocrite. So one dictionary defines a hypocrite as a person who pretends to have virtues, morals, and religious beliefs that he or she does, doesn't actually possess or live out in their life. A person whose actions contradict their stated belief. In other words, you know how it goes. A person who says one thing and does another. Their actions are not consistent with what they say they believe. So how do you know if you or someone you know is a hypocrite? How do you know? Well, here's one good way. You, you've heard the saying, practice what you preach, right? You've heard that saying. Well, if we look at someone's practice in light of what they say to believe, it's a good barometer for hypocrisy. And as I reflected on that this week, I uh, just have to admit I, I'm a hypocrite at a lot of different levels. A lot of different things. And the great news is, so are you. So that's a great opener for today, isn't it? Welcome to North Wake where we're all hypocrites. Come on in, join us. But even though we laugh about it, there's, we probably would agree that hypocrisy in any form really isn't good. And we can find ourselves, we, we just, every week we find ourselves in positions where we're tempted or we fall, um, really sinking up 
our actions with what we believe. We, we just, it doesn't seem to ever, it seems like a balance we can't seem to find really well. So, and what, so what difference does it really make? Let's get down to the bottom line. That's, that's where I like to get anyway pretty quickly. So what difference does it make? If we're all hypocrites and we're saved by grace, what difference does it make how I live? I've heard that a lot of times. What difference does it make? I'm saved by grace anyway. Well, here's the easy answer. It comes out of our passage today. How you live is what you really believe. That's the easy button. That's the easy answer. And we're going to look at the passage today and try to unfold that from Paul's confrontation of Peter in Galatians 2, starting with verse 11. So let's go directly there. But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that when Barnabas, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Last week we started chapter 2 and it was the the first of two major um, visitations between Peter and Paul. The first happened when Paul went to Jerusalem uh, to see Peter in his hometown, and the second one happens when Peter travels to Paul's home of his missionary operations in Antioch. Antioch is a Gentile town, Jerusalem heavily Jewish. Okay, two different, radically different environments. Last week we saw that the very point that was being made was the nature of the gospel was being laid as a, as a really strong foundation for the rest of the mission of God. And the false teachers had come to pressure Paul and Barnabas and Titus into believing that Jesus was not enough. That they needed something else, something of obedience added to the work of Christ. Particularly in this area um, circumcision. So the principle at hand was Paul fighting for the fact that Jesus is enough. And once again, we have to ask the question is Jesus enough? Is his life, his death, his resurrection enough to cleanse you from all of your sin and make you beautiful in the sight of God? And we found last week that. Peter and Paul shook hands on it and said, yes, Jesus is enough. So we're staying within the context of that story and moving to this one 
There's a reoccurring theme in chapter 2 that I want you to be very mindful of. When Paul's talking about these false teachers and the doctrine that is not the gospel, he points to the fact that they did not yield in submission uh, for a moment to these false teachers so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, the Gentiles, the Galatians, and us. So false teaching would not be, would not rule the day. Peter stood up against that. And then in our verse today, in in verse 14, Peter says the reason for his confrontation of Peter was because their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So from verse 1 to verse 15 or 14, we see today two things. Paul teaches us that we can contradict the gospel not, not only with false teaching, we can also contradict the gospel by the simple conduct of our life. Doctrine, life, teaching, life. Both can go astray. Both can get us radically far from the gospel. So what was it that Peter was doing what were his actions? Because Paul says that he stood condemned by his actions, not by his teaching in Antioch. What was it that Peter was doing that was such a grievous error that would promote Paul to, if you will, get in Peter's grill? Because the text says that he did it face to face. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but conflict's not a real big issue for me. I'm good with it, if need be. Um, my brother, however, growing up, was like the opposite of me. He didn't want conflict at any cost. He would do anything um, to avoid conflict. I did about everything to bring about conflict. Therefore, we were a good match for each other growing up. But why would Paul feel so pressed to confront the Apostle Peter. What, what did he do? 14, we see that reoccurring theme. He was out of step with the truth of the gospel. Pastor John Piper writes this, the benefits of the gospel can only be received by a living faith in the Son of God, not by works of the law. But when the gospel is received by faith, your life changes. When you finally hear And believe the drumbeat of the gospel, the rhythm of your step changes. It gets in tune with the gospel. There is a life in step with the gospel, and then there is a life out of step with the gospel. You don't attain the benefits of the gospel by doing a little moral cleanup job on your life. You attain forgiveness and joy and peace and power through daily reliance upon Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. But that faith when it is genuine, creates a rhythm of life that is in step with the truth of the gospel. The doctrinal truth and the action all match up. Peter had fallen out of step with Paul and it was, Peter had fallen out of step with the gospel and it was very clear to Paul. Very clear. Peter Previously in this chapter, 
had extended the hand of fellowship to Paul in Jerusalem, uniting the church with one message and one mission. The gospel of grace to all peoples. Peter to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. Same message to all peoples. That was the beauty of what we learned last week. And he had now come to Antioch and there shared the table fellowship together with Jews and Gentiles alike. He was, in the words of verse 14, enjoying the freedom in the gospel and living like a Gentile. But it's very important for us to remember at this point how Peter came to the revelation that the gospel of Christ brought radical freedom even to dirty Gentiles like you and me. Dirty, hypocritical Gentiles like you and me. How, if you would, turn, turn to Acts 10 with me for a moment. You see, there was a Gentile named Cornelius that God intended for Peter to share the gospel with. There was only one little hiccup in the plan. You see, Peter was a good old Jewish boy, and good old Jewish boys don't associate with dirty Gentiles. So Peter had to go through some special missionary training, some cultural sensitivity training, and some contextualization training before he made his visit to Cornelius. And in chapter 10, starting in verse 9, we have, we have this amazing event happen. Peter, after praying for six hours, just stop there with me for a minute. Okay, the next time you want to hear from the Lord, praying for six hours will help. Okay? But this miraculous event happened on the backside of praying for six hours. A sheet, he had a vision of a sheet being rolled out from heaven with all kinds of animals that the Mosaic law had pronounced unclean. And a voice said to him in verse 13, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. I love that part. Let's say it again. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter responded, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came back to him in verse 15. What God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. This event had pronounced effect on on Peter, um, like I think it would you too, if you had a vision like that. That probably would have some pronounced effect on you. In verse 28, we see what that effect was. He proclaims to the Gentiles that you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. But here is where the hypocrisy lies. For even though Peter had this beautiful, amazing, gracious and merciful vision from God, And this amazing stated belief that came out of it. In verse 12 of Galatians 2. 
when the boys from Jerusalem showed up, it was too much for him. And he separated himself from the Gentiles. Now, the language seems to assert that this was more of a gradual disconnection. That as probably the pressure was pressed on him, he began to pull back and pull back. Peter stood condemned for dividing the body of Christ over cultural pressures and Jewish dietary law. And here's the point I want you to understand. Peter divided in his actions. This is why he was out of step with the gospel. Peter divided in his actions the very thing that God was joining together in his actions. Say that again. Peter denied the gospel in his actions because he divided what God in his actions was joining together. Romans 9, 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. God is redeeming a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And he's bringing them together to be unified around the gospel, through the gospel, to him. United to him and to one another. This is what God is doing. This is his redemptive work. And Peter, Peter's actions were in direct conflict with that. And they were very hypocritical. And not only did they lead him astray they led all the Jewish believers they led all the Jewish believers in Antioch including Paul's right hand guy Barnabas away from the truth of the gospel when the leader got out of step the whole thing unraveled so With that said, dads, lend me your ears, lend me your eyes, and lend me your heart for just one second. If you, the leader of your home, get out of step with the gospel, the whole thing comes undone, and you will lead more than yourself away. When was the last time you evaluated your leadership by being in step with the gospel? Not cultural norms, not compared to the guy next door, 
Because we always pick the guy we're doing way better than. When was the last time you looked at the gospel and held your life up into examination and said, am I in line with this? Not only do I believe it, but what I say, do I believe it by what I do? This is vital. It's vital for all of us to come directly in line with the gospel. Verse 14, this is the main idea of today. This is the main idea of this passage that you must walk in line with the gospel. Now, if we look at the words used in our English translation here, it's a little hard because walking has a lot of different ideas that pop into mind. The idea here is all of life. It's the trajectory of your life, all your feelings, all your motivations, all the things that you do. Your walk is your life. It's everything. And it must be in line. The gospel is not only for our salvation, it is a guide for our life. And we are to walk in line with that. No little veers to the right or to the left. So together, those words put together, the meaning here is that the gospel has a trajectory. It has a place it's going and it has truths that lead us there. And we are to walk in line with those truths. So here are those truths. The fact is that you're a sinner. You're a hypocritical sinner. First truth of the gospel. You have to need a savior. You have to have a reality that is true. That's reality for us. But here's the beauty of it. That although we try all kinds of different things to self-justify and to save ourselves, we can't do it. We are condemned at every turn. But Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law completely. To die in our stead. That if we would believe in him, we would be completely accepted with no additions and no subtractions. This is the good news. The gospel is something that we must boldly proclaim. We've tried to push our church in that direction this year and there are many stories of people really going outside their comfort zone to do that and I'm so very thankful for that. But it is not only the gospel to be boldly proclaimed, it is at the same time something that is boldly to be practiced. Where Peter got off course, we do also. And we live outside of the step of the truths of the gospel. We do not practice what we preach. We live on the edge of hypocrisy And often we don't realize it. 
We are sinners saved by grace. But the effects of that grace sometimes have a very hard time finding their way to our life. And we live in peril because we're disoriented by our sin. In a book called Into Thin Air, John Krakauer tells of his harrowing experience climbing Mount Everest. And on May 10th, 1996, he made it to the top. And it's a short time up there. He spent a very few moments taking in the mountaintop before heading down, his muscles exhausted, his limbs frozen, his brain oxygen deprived. And as he descended, some clouds drifted up and enveloped him. And soon, thunder and lightning and snowstorm threatened to disorient him. But he was close enough to base camp number four to get to a shelter tents before the full force of the storm hit. But there were four other climbers that arrived the summit shortly after John did and They did not have time to get back to that camp before dark. The storm caused them to lose their way. Exhausted and lost, they simply laid down to wait out the night. And when they awoke in the morning, they found that they had laid down just one step from a 4,000-foot precipice on the south wall. They had slept the night on the edge of a cliff in the middle of a snowstorm. And I'm afraid we do as well. I am afraid that we allow our culture to disorient us or the storms of life to disorient us or the relativism of this world or the fear of man or the darkness of unbelief and we become disoriented and we lose our way and we step away from the gospel we might not know it but we are right on the edge of disaster when we do that one little click to the right one little step to the left precipice So my question today is, how do you identify where most of those little missteps in your life happen? From Peter's life, one of the biggest missteps for him and for most of us is fearing man more than fearing God. Peter was ravaged by it. And I'm not exactly sure why he feared the boys from Jerusalem so much. I don't know. Doesn't tell me. The text doesn't tell me. But the point is that he did. But I do know why most of us fear men. We fear men because they can expose and humiliate us. We fear man because they can reject and ridicule and despise us. We fear man because they can attack and oppress and threaten us. But here lies the beauty of the gospel. The gospel speaks to all three of these things. Listen with me. 
expose and humiliate us? What exposes us more or humiliates us more than the Savior of the world dying on the cross for us? We've been exposed. We are sinners and hypocrites alike. Saved by grace. Christ comes and dies for who? For you, a sinner. You've been exposed. You don't have to worry about somebody else exposing you. You worried about somebody rejecting you, ridiculing you, despising you? Jesus took all those on for you. He was rejected. He was despised. He was ridiculed, beaten, crucified for your sin and for the sins of the world. You worried about somebody oppressing you, attacking you, threatening you? Christ has released you from the wrath of God. Why would you fear anything else? Why would you fear, what can man do to you? The gospel speaks to the fear of man. You see, the fear of man sets the trajectory of your worship in the wrong direction, and it is not in line with the gospel. You must realign it. You must preach the gospel to yourself. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The second misstep that hinders us greatly is that we play down the deceitfulness and danger of sin. We like to walk on the edge and think that we're okay, that that 4,000-foot precipice really isn't there. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm until the end. Sin is deceitful. It leads our heart astray. It hardens our heart. Every misstep we take, every time we allow a little variance from the gospel, our hearts grow hard and we turn away from the living God. Puritan theologian John Owen writes this, this hardening is so serious that your heart becomes insensitive to moral influence. Sin leads to this. Every sin and lust will make a little progress in this direction. You who at one time were very tender and would melt under the influence of the word and under trials will grow sermon proof and trial proof. So what's the remedy? The gospel. Gospel fellowship with God and with brothers and sisters that will exhort you daily. 
Christ came and died to bridge the gap between you and bring you into fellowship with God that you could not have before. And not only that, he bound you with a family, the people of God, in order that you might enjoy that fellowship as well. Much deeper than blood relation, much deeper than the family you're stuck with no matter what. What? This family, this is the family of Christ. So, two things. If that's the truth, then spending time in fellowship with God must be an anchor of your life. If you want to walk in step with the gospel, you must fellowship with the one who invented it. You must spend time in his word. Away. Knowing him destroys self-love and the fear of man like nothing else. Because you're confronted with God. And the vision you get from that is radically different than the one you custom designed by yourself. You want a good place to start? If you're having issues, you're just asking God a lot of questions and getting after it that way, go to Job 38 and spend some time. Stop asking questions and start receiving questions as Job did. It will radically transform your perspective. I promise you. It will put you back in right... This is where I go every time. I get too big for my britches, I go there. Stop asking God a bunch of questions. How about receiving some from him? Gives you a radical different view. But the, f- the amazing thing is, although these questions come to Job like just like a machine gun, and you're just like, enough, enough, enough. Here's the beauty of it. It was grace to Job. It was grace. Time with God where God revealed himself to Job. And time with him in his word will do the same for you. So there's one. The second piece is this. Paul was a means of grace to Peter and to the church for that matter. All of us need a Paul. Now, before you run out and just decide you gotta link arms with some guy who's much older than you and you gotta have a mentor, listen to me. You need a man who's courageous, not a man who has gray hair. You need a man who knows the gospel and can speak it into your life. Women, you need a a woman who will sit beside you and yes, acknowledge these are feelings that you have, but also will speak the gospel into your life and bring you back into line with the gospel. I don't need a guy who's gonna pat me on the back and tell me about how great I am. I need a guy who'll look me right in the eye, face to face and say, out of step. That's out of step. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen enough. And this verse in Hebrews 3, 12 through 14 says, this is the way that God intends it to happen. 
You want to know how you're going to finish firm until the end and have confidence? You're going to do that by brothers and sisters coming alongside you daily and exhorting you today as it's called today so that your heart won't grow hard and fall away. That's God's plan to keep you firm until the end. Sounds like what the church ought to be doing then. So now small group takes on a whole other dynamic, doesn't it? It should. Now, on the back side of that, all of us need to be a Paul. We not only need one, we need to be one. We need to have courage to confront others. We need to learn to speak the truth of the gospel into one another's lives. And, we, and when we see things that are not in step with the truth, we need to come to them speaking the truth in love. Not condemning, not swinging a big ESV study Bible. If you've seen that thing, it's like this big. We don't need that. I need you to come alongside me and show me where my sin is and then walk with me. Not just go, hey, there's sin. See you later, have a good day. I don't need that. I'm good. But if you want to lock arms with me and walk with me and help me work through that, that's what it's all about. So you need a Paul and you need to be a Paul. And if you don't know the gospel well enough, then I would encourage you to study. There's a book called The Gospel Primer. If you don't write anything down this today in your note, write that down. The Gospel Primer. Get it, read it, meditate on it. Learn to speak the gospel into your own life and to others. I read it every year, all the time, because I need to know, I need to know how to do that. And you want to know the greatest illustration of the gospel? The greatest illustration of what we've been talking about today comes from this table in front of us. It comes from the example of Jesus on the night before he was to be betrayed. It's a beautiful picture because here, Peter received the fellowship that he denied others. He sat at Jesus' table when Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took a cup. And after he blessed it, he said, this is my blood, blood of the new covenant shed for your sin and the sins of the world. Take this and do this in remembrance of me. So every time we come to this table, we acknowledge that we believe the gospel and it alone for salvation and that we do this together, unified as one body. No matter your nationality, no matter where you come from, no matter what your background is, if you place your trust in Christ, he is faithful. He is faithful to save you.
And at that point, you become a son or a daughter of the living God.